0: Uh, while the future is uncertain, um, I, I do not believe we are going to be stuck in this kind of uh, particular pr- paralysis we're in now um, indefinitely. I just think uh, mm-hmm. it, can't, it can't possibly hold. And I think that uh, hopefully in ways that will be encouraging, the future will surprise us.
1: You are listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode 26, The End of the End of History, featuring Luke Savage from Michael and us and Jackman. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Josiah, and I am joined today by Luke Savage, staff writer for Jacobin, co-host of the Michael and Us podcast, alongside Will Sloan, author of The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History, and co-author of the late Ed Broadbent's uh, memoir, Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality. Welcome, Luke.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I did think about kind of starting off here is... um, Talking about Ed Broadbent's um, kind of you know influence on your your thought, um, he's not a figure I you know very familiar with, but I know that he's been pretty important to you and kind of the formation of your view of social democracy. So, do you want to tell a little bit about him? Sure. Well, um, for uh, for those who uh, aren't
0: familiar with Ed, he was the leader of uh, the New Democratic Party of Canada between 1975 and 1989. Um, he actually, I guess, uh, stepped down from the leadership uh, when I was, I don't know, eight months old, something like that. So, you know, uh, I was not really contemporary with his political career or the or the bulk of it. Um, but, uh, you know, he was for two decades, really, uh, you know, one of the most recognizable and, and well-respected, widely respected uh, figures on the left in Canada. You know, he was uh, his personal popularity in the 80s um you know was uh, was higher than that of any other national politician he was also the first um to f- first leader of the NDP or its predecessor the CCF to um you know lead the party to first place in opinion polls um and uh i guess it was 8 days ago um you know there was a state funeral for him in uh ottawa which i had the honor of speaking and i think uh you know the fact that he had a state funeral at all which is very rare for Um, you know, a non-prime minister, um, you know, I think is a testament to how even 35 years after he was leader of the NDP, um, you know, there was still um, just remarkable affection and and respect for him. Um, You know, he was a formative figure within, you know, the Canadian left, but also um, he had, you know, a lot of uh, respect and admiration across the political spectrum. Um, and, you know, he was also, I mean, he really was an intellectual. So, you know, I think he's a rare example of someone who comes from a kind of academic background. I mean, his background was working class, um, in Oshawa, uh, which is, I mean, for, for American listeners, uh, you know, has a lot of similarities with somewhere like Detroit. It was, you know, a big union town, uh, um, you know, built around, uh, automaking, um but uh you know yeah he was he uh you know went to university and and developed uh, you know a lot of uh ideas about philosophy and political economy and then um you know turned out to be a very effective politician and i had the uh immense uh privilege of working with him and and two colleagues on uh the book he mentioned off the top um which is kind of a you know, a, a broad series of reflections, uh, on, you know, from Ed on his, on his life and also a series of dialogues between the three of us and, uh, and him. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, just that came out in, on October the 10th. So just about three months before Ed, um, you know, tragically passed away.
1: Moving, moving back to town to kind of American politics or maybe just general politics, world politics, uh, you know, as, uh, the title of, uh, the dead center, the subtitle, you know, suggests the end of history is a big part of your thinking. Right. And, um, you know, I think it's something that I come back to a lot, um, you know, because I, I've also been influenced by like Mark Fisher, um, sure. and stuff like that. And how I look at, look at politics. And I think right now is an interesting moment to kind of reflect on kind of, as we're winding down the Biden administration, what, uh. Are are we at the end of the end of history? You know what I mean? Um
0: Sure, sure. Uh, um are, I mean, it's interesting the way you formulated that because you're know, yeah. winding down the Biden administration. I mean, I guess it's an open question what will uh what will happen. I, I, but yeah, I, yeah, we're certainly we're certainly at the tail end of, you know Yeah, my bias Biden's coming first, out in that first question term and that. it may Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, maybe Biden's uh first of two terms and or it may be, you know, his first and, and only term, I guess we'll we'll see, and perhaps we can talk about you know the various possibilities a little further down the line yeah, here absolutely. um in terms though, of the of the sort of burden of your question i mean um yeah i'm not you know not sure how much detail to go in in here but i mean obviously you know the the uh, the writer francis fukuyama had this this famous book the end of history and the last man in the 1990s um but i, I would say that the the phrase the end of history is sort of taken on a life of its own um you know it's become synonymous with, I think, a particular idea that was very popular in the 1990s and had really broad kind of intellectual and political uh, buy-in, which was this notion that um, the 1990s were sort of going to go on forever, right? There was going to be a sort of um, a world order premised on uh, sort of unipolar American power. Um, You know, every country was going to become a sort of U.S.-style liberal democracy, um, and, you know, uh, you know, there were other facets to it as well. The internet was of course, a, you know, becoming a thing. And so there was an idea that basically a certain kind of liberal capitalism is just going to be com- totally, totally hegemonic. Um, and you know, it'll, it'll go on forever. So all the big developments, um, that had kind of punctuated the 20th century, all the sort of grand ideological experiments and projects you know, that, I mean, began with, depends on where you started, the French Revolution sure. or, where, or wherever <laughs> else, you know, the, the the things that have characterized the modern age, um, you know, that's that's done. And, um, you know, what we've got to look forward to, and some people were genuinely, they weren't, it wasn't tongue in cheek, they generally were looking forward to it, uh, is kind of a, yeah, political future that looks like Clintonism uh, and, you know, culturally looks like, you know, Friends, the, you know, the TV right. show or something, <laughs> right? Like just like, so uh, historical progress uh, just kind of grinds to a halt. Maybe there's other kinds of progress, technological or, you know, people's uh, paychecks were going to allegedly get bigger and there was going to just be this, you know, f- continued uh, growth of, you know, there's always going to be more consumer goods, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But History uh, was was kind of frozen in time. And the strength, and obviously that doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really no, hold, enough, uh, of course. doesn't hold. Again, this is one of those things where you could date it in various places, but you could date it with 9-11, you could date it with the financial crisis. And for me, that's really the big one, sort of the first financial crisis. Um, uh, the 2010s, which, um, you know, among, among other things, Vincent Bevins has written about in his, in his new book, you um, know, it's kind of decade of protests that i don't think um you know the 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 kind of real zealots in the 1990s i don't think really predicted that sort of um that that sort of decade lay ahead particularly so soon after right, right. you know the ni- the 1990s um and so uh, and then you know there were these kind of uh, there've been these kind of uh, un- unexpected left wing insurgencies as well in places like um britain the united states there is you know, uh, my generation and by the looks of you, yours as well, you
1: know, who I'm actually a little bit younger than, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're younger than
0: me. Yep. Well, so my generation then, and also the one, uh, that's younger, I mean, uh, just do not have the same faith in liberal democratic capitalism as no. m- many people. I don't, I don't want to generalize too much about how generations feel, but I think, you know, many, many people who are, uh, you know, who are born before us. Um, and so, mm-hmm. Uh, we're living in a very strange moment because the end of history, you know, as as I think you were hinting at in your question, I mean, it's 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 obviously over, but it's not really clear what's coming next. We're living in a strange mm-hmm. uh, moment, which I tried to sort of capture in my book, and and which is right there in the title of my book. Where the center's kind of collapsed, but it's all like in the sense of having legitimacy, having any kind of widespread popular buy-in, because a lot of people, as I said, were very excited about this in the 1990s, not just elites. I mean, to some extent, um, you, know, uh, you know, the American public and, and various other publics as well. Um, but there's not really any popular buy-in. The machine is still going, but it's not really clear like where it's getting, from where it's drawing fuel. It's kind of running on... Uh, fumes. and I think that mm. is the the, the main uh, you know feature of our current political moment and the thing that makes it um, so strange.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's um, there's a sense that obviously uh, nothing nothing seems to be quite working, but also that it, it it's really difficult to imagine what comes next. And yeah, I, I think I think maybe an important aspect of of how we've gotten to where we're at now, um, and something that you you've written about quite a bit is the Obama administration. Um, sure, you know I I know that that was something that um, you know you, you've referenced in in writing that that was like a big, uh, big big politically formative moment for you. Do you want to say a little bit about like the kind of betrayal of the Obama administration? <laughs>
0: sure. Uh, but so are you? So are you a zoomer? I mean, where were you yeah. on election night? Oh in yeah, 2008? I should say
1: yeah. So I, I I'm born '97. So I'm yeah I'm a okay, zoomer. Right. Um, right. Right right uh kind so, of millennial, so you, you yeah. so
0: you might have a faint sort of memory of that event but like it probably mm. wasn't uh probably doesn't have the same kind of form no quality.
1: and i i was i was uh you know raised in like a conservative evangelical household so that was a, a dark day you know mm. it was like oh no <laughs> <The liberals laughs>
0: oh gosh won. well i would i would i would love <laughs> to hear about that but no um i mean uh for for me, I mean, I, I think that it's it's really not possible to be someone from from sort of my background and my location in 2008 and not have you know the the election of Barack Obama and the sort of campaign that preceded it, um, you know, be a be a formative uh, moment. You know, if you were mm-hmm. so, I mean, I was in I was at the University of Toronto, right? I'm, I'm a Canadian, um, but uh, you know, plenty of Americans studied at the University of Toronto, and even if that hadn't been the case, I mean. Uh, people were following it so closely. I mean, uh, lots of people in my you know dorm, my residence, lots of people at my college who were not um, pro- politically inclined. Everybody was following this. Everyone was excited when uh, CNN broke the news that Obama uh, was gonna was gonna win the presidency. I mean, people just streamed out into the quad. There, people were crying. They were you know punching the air, hugs. I mean, it was. Um, it was quite extraordinary. And I think that reflected the, um, well, the the hopes that a lot of people had, um, and not just, you know, people of my generation. I mean, um, Obama, to many of us, really seemed like he was the negation of everything that had made the George Bush era so horrible. Um, and, you know, there was this burgeoning financial crisis, and it seemed like, well, here's a guy from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He's going to get tough on Wall Street. Um, he's such a gifted communicator. He's going to just, I mean, he's going to, we thought he was going to inaugurate a new political order. And actually there's an essay in my book in which I review some of the commentary um, from uh, from that era. And I mean, if you go back to it now, its it's, I mean, it's kind of like, a dispatch from an alien realm or something. I mean, what people were predicting was going to happen. Um, so, you know, obviously there's the, you know, there's there are kind of the stages of grief, if you want. There's the various things that you kind of do to process, you know, where the Obama administration ultimately went. And I think people drew different conclusions about what was going on. Obviously, the liberal explanation for the Obama presidency uh, it, which I've never, I've no, I don't subscribe to. I think is is not uh, is not really substant. You can't substantiate it. Is that uh, well, he was just frustrated by sort of Republican intransigence and and that kind of thing. And he he basically pushed as far as anyone could have reasonably expected him to push. Now I don't think that's true. If you look at what Obama himself has written in his recent memoir, the first volume of it that came out in twenty twenty one, I guess, um, you know, he he's his his opposition to, for example. Uh, really cracking down on Wall Street after the financial crisis that was uh, that was ideological he says quite explicitly that he didn't want to do that uh, he, he doesn't he doesn't believe in that kind of thing he's not a, a believer in activist government he has a very sort of anemic um and Spartan conception of the of like the role of the state and and what the role of the president should be and so I think many people and and this really began to, uh, make itself, you know, clear during first. I think Occupy Wall Street, but then uh, the the first of the the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. Many people who were of the age to uh, be and have been enthusiastic about Obama's election. I mean, we're just not buying. Uh, they they weren't buying the kind of uh, premise that they'd bought in 2008, and they weren't buying the liberal explanations for why the Obama presidency had failed. And they they wanted an alternative. They wanted a different approach, and that's why they were attracted to a figure like. Bernie sanders in in record numbers, there was a lot of talk in two thousand and eight about Obama's youth support, which I think at the time did break records but I yeah, mean yeah. Uh, Sanders got more votes i mean he i mean it's like i'm I'm forgetting the exact figure, but it's like uh, I think it was more votes than if you tallied up in the primaries, like Obama Clinton and Trump combined, or something like that oh my god I, I mean it was it was that. orders of magnitude uh larger. Um, And so, you know, the the Obama presidency is, I think, yeah, a formative moment for all those reasons. It was a time where perhaps mistakenly, but, you know, earnestly, a lot of us thought, um, you know, Th- things really are uh, going to change there's going to be a new kind of political order that even republicans are going to have to operate within you know it's going to be a kind of reagan revolution but but not but for evil that was the left, left that was wing, the yeah. exactly that was a, <laughs> right. that was a feeling um and i honestly think that even some um you know like very, uh, you know, intelligent and uh, politically sophisticated people on the left thought that also, even if they didn't, you know, they didn't think that Obama was a radical. Um, And so I think what happens when, uh, you know, the the prophecy fails um, is that, Mm. you know, many, many people, uh, I mean, I think some people uh, decide that uh, actually it was them that failed and really like the country failed Obama in some way. And I think other people (laughs) come to a, perhaps a, Uh, you know, a better conclusion.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. No, that I I think that that speaks a lot to the, the prospects of like progressive politics in the United States. Um, Yeah. There was a sense that we, we did get our guy in, and yeah. uh, then he betrayed us. And so what's the, yeah. is there any point in trying this? Well, yeah, place? let
0: me let me actually say one thing, because I should have mentioned this one thing more on this. I mean, sure. just to be to be even more concrete about it. In 2008, the Democratic Party not only won the presidency with this huge kind of like, you know, uh, I mean, the extent to which Obama had a mass movement is debatable given that the voter turnout, I think was still below 60%. But there's no doubt that there was a very engaged um you know a very engaged uh, you know mass of people around the Obama campaign. Uh, the, de- the Democrats though also they had a big majority in the House. they had uh, say so 60 votes in the United States Senate after June of uh, 2009 because of the whatever the uh, Senate special election that brought I think it was Al Franken uh, in. So mm. every single uh, every single piece was in place. every piece was on the board Um, you know, as far as what many liberals and kind of progressive Democrats had thought, like, these are the things we need. This is the scenario we need in order to, uh, you know, pass an agenda of, you know, uh, universal public health care, Wall Street reform, campaign finance reform, uh, you know, uh, control prescription drug prices, you name it. And um, not only did that not happen, but by the 2010 midterms, um, you know, The Obama, uh, you know, the Democrats were so unpopular, and the and the sort of populist wave that Obama had ridden in two thousand and eight was, you know, uh, increasingly sort of being capitalized on by the right and the Tea Party, Um, you know. Like the, Ob- the the Obama thing collapsed very quickly. Obviously he won the presidency in 2012, but um, the losses the Democratic Party faced um, or, or suffered under Obama beginning in 2010 um, you know were, were really quite profound. And so uh, yeah there's 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 many ways in which um, you know the Obama experience tested the assumptions that many liberals and progressives had had held and, and it turned out those assumptions really didn't hold up.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, like you mentioned, yeah, the rise of the kind of insurgent right going on under that, um, I mean, clearly set the stage for the Trump administration leading, you know, leading forward the, the Tea Party, whatever, um, the the kind of racial rhetoric that was floating around at the time, you know, all all was setting the stage. One one uh, before we move forward, kind of a, a side tangent here, but um, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on kind of Obama's post presidency, kind of like celebrity celebrity kind of thing he's been doing sure well
0: you know this is actually an interesting topic and i feel like it's been underexplored because it's just sort of like well first of all because it's just presumed now and it has been since roughly the 90s that The thing that presidents do, unless you're Jimmy Carter, is you just go off and you make like just truckloads of money and it does not matter where you get it, you know, Um, and maybe there's some pretense to you're doing charity or something like that. But I mean, I think it was George H.W. Bush who sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of set the precedent for like massive speaking fees and that kind of thing. Um, and Obama has really taken this even further where it's like, you know, he's, he's, uh, not just doing, you know, these ghastly, like grotesque speeches to like the banks that he didn't regulate or prosecute during the, <laughs> right, you right. know, during the financial <laughs> crisis. Um, but he's like, yeah, he's, he's, be, he's trying to become a, he's like, he's like, wants to be the er influencer, right? He's publishing these, these perfectly curated, like middle brow lists, um of books that that he likes and or or ostensibly likes and you know music and all the rest of it. And um you know it's really interesting to kind of like when you sit and you study these lists which I'm a sicko so obviously I've done <laughs> um it, you find you find that they are very much an extension of his what his political brand has always been going back to the speech that really put him on the national stage in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention. Uh that was his speech where he said, you know, there's, there's no red states and blue states. There's only the United States. You know, we have some gay friends in the red, red states and we have, you know, we don't like uh, the government poking around our public libraries in the blue states. or You know, whatever. It was, was that kind of slew of things, right? And that is Obama's main rhetorical uh, move. You can find it. He's been doing that since he wrote Dreams from My Father, which was his memoir in the 90s that yeah. came out actually before he was well known. That is the Obama special. Um, It is setting up a bunch of things that are generally regarded as opposites uh, and then sort of explaining or implying that actually conflict, all conflict is illusory and it's sort of resolved in some way by his own biography or or autobiography and like his ascent to, you know, the presidency or his fame or whatever. So like... He did that throughout his presidency, and if you look at these lists, I mean, it's incredible. Like, um, I think it was twenty twenty one. His list included a a a, a version of it was uh, Aretha Franklin covering the band's "The Weight" with Dwayne Allman on guitar. So, like, there you have it's the perfect, you know, uh, it's the perfect, um, you know, uh, you know uh, medley of like heartland American sounds. It's white, it's black, it's like. You know, it's, 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 it's like Southern it's, uh, but it's, it's also, it's, it's the band, (laughs) like it's got, it's all there. And, um, that, so he's still very much doing, um, he's still very much doing the same thing. Uh, I think the most interesting, uh, sort of uh, innovate, well, innovation's the wrong word. That's, I don't want to, it's too positive. The the most interesting experiment, uh, that he's done is this podcast with Bruce Springsteen, which I think is a really good, uh, you know, which I'm, I'm hitting, I'm slapping myself that I didn't uh, find time to write about it when they did it. Um, actually I emailed the publisher repeatedly to ask for the, a copy of the book that they released in tandem. (laughs) And would you believe it? They never sent it along. And I was like, I'm not paying $50 for an Obama Bruce Springsteen (laughs) book. I could buy like a whole Springsteen box set for that. and And then I, at least I'd have fun. Um, but uh, you know that that uh, that show is. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying this. Uh, I'm saying this in like a if you're a sicko who wants to study Obama kind of way, not in I'm recommending you listen to it kind of way. But the show really is interesting because, like Obama and Springsteen, uh, like like they see their roles. It, it seems in a very similar way. Um, except the thing about Springsteen is that he's an artist, so when he uh, is a, a mythmaker and he's inventing a kind of persona for for himself, and like, you know, he and and he's doing that consciously as you know as somebody who wants to tell American stories. Like, that's what we expect from artists. It's what we yeah, need Yeah, that's what that. an
1: artist does. Yeah.
0: That's literally what an artist does. And then, you know, when Obama does it, uh, and that's he's really kind upsetting. of just like ha- harvesting all of these cultural signifiers and reference points and like attaching them to his own biography. It's like, that's not what we expect or should expect or want from political leaders, right? Yeah. We, we don't, we shouldn't want them to be these like, Uh, I don't know, uh, pastoral figures who like tend the national lawn and mediate between the different like you know cultural uh you know groupings or or however mm. obama would 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 conceive it you know we want them to uh, advance an agenda right <laughs> it's right. like to, to obama make things never that we
1: voted you in to do, to do do the things That's... that we voted for you to do
0: <laughs> exactly right and that is not how obama saw his role so the podcast is interesting because yeah. like yeah he and springsteen um you know yeah, conceive of their roles uh, as similar but you know the way Springsteen does it is you know perfectly legitimate and the way Obama does it is completely absurd. And of course in the I think the one instance where Springsteen tries to talk about the financial crisis Obama just you know steers it away very quickly <laughs> and deftly.
1: You know nope, let's not talk about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> did you uh, did you see uh, Leave the World Behind? It was the uh, I think it was a Netflix movie, but that was the one the Obamas produced. Um, no, I, what's that one about? It's a, it's a post-apocalypse movie. Actually, I, I think you would go ape shit watching it. I think, <laughs> I, I think it would be a hilarious future Michael and us episode. Um,
0: yeah. One to investigate for sure.
1: Yeah. Cause it's not like they don't, I think the only impact the Obama's had on the movie is that a lot of the songs are from uh, like also appear in Obama's playlists. <laughs> I, I think that's about it. I mean it. I mean
0: that that it, in and of itself just that detail is is fascinating because that is like uh, I mean that's like uh it's like brand it's like cross platform integration like but yeah. but with like high level influencer stuff like that is like when um God, I'm forgetting what the Star Wars thing Mm. was where in order to understand the plot of like (laughs) one of the movies or video games, you had to to also buy like you had to you had to buy like a DLC and like what I mean, I don't know what whatever it was, you know, but it was like it was like you had to you had to buy separate things that were and that were part of different media and were available on different platforms to get like like the deep you had to do research
1: to understand this media object (laughs) yeah yeah so
0: it's like so like uh or or you know this is like uh yeah it's it's also i guess you could look at it more straightforwardly it's just like product placement it's like you know it's like obama like these are the songs that he's trying to elevate uh Presumably some of them composed or produced by people who come to his birthday parties. And then he's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, do you solid? We'll put it in this movie we're producing.
1: Yeah. And and, but the thing is, even if he played no role in like the actual story of the movie, having Obama appear at the front of the movie frames everything that happens after it. And like, I mean, the movie goes on about how, wow, there's so many nations that would like want to do military action against the U.S., and I don't want Obama saying that. You you guys <laughs> It's like yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. Wonder if the guy whose name on this movie is maybe <laughs> responsible for some of that. <laughs> anyway, um yeah, maybe maybe move on we, we can move on here to the uh the kind of Trump administration afterwards. So I, I think I think um for, for like where, where two thousand eight was a big formative political moment for you. I think people around my age, 2016 is that, which Mm. I think is a, is kind of an interesting difference because I think um, being more closer to like the millennial side, you'll, you'll have a politics that's framed by, you know, we, we all, it seemed like there was prospect for progressivism and then it, it was betrayed as I think Mm. zoomers are framed by a politics of crisis constantly. Um, Because I mean, since, I started really paying attention to politics in college during the Trump administration. Um, Mm. And so it was just a constant sense of crisis. And I think that there's something that kind of... um, Zoomers might miss out on because of not being super active during the Obama administration is realizing that so many of the people that are putting themselves up as uh, the, the the ones that are fighting the crisis, fighting Trump or whatever, are often the ones that were creating the situation that produced him in the first place. So, yeah, I guess what uh, what did you kind of make of the Trump administration? Like what? What uh, what did it represent in politics? I know that's a huge question, but
0: yeah, I mean, it it is it's it's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, I think I, I guess what was really the the, the the big question when Trump took office was to what extent are the you know, if you want the heterodox noises that he's made, some of the particular, you know, the especially weird people around him that aren't coming from like you know, the Republican machine or the, or the, you know, what, what's called the conservative movement, which was, you know, very hostile in general to Trump during the primary. Um, you know, to what extent is any of that going to matter? And um, mm-hmm. I think that basically the Trump presidency, so the, the, what was at stake, if you want, uh, was, just before I continue, was like, to what extent is, is, has right-wing politics reinvented itself? And to what extent is, mm-hmm. is Trumpism just sort of, Continuity with the past. And I think, you know, after with the benefit of hindsight, I think what we could say is Trump uh, represented continuity. uh, I mean, notwithstanding his weird personal style, which is unique. um, Mm -hmm. You know, he represented continuity with, I think, previous incarnations of the right uh, much more than he did change, right? The signature policy yeah. achievements, if you want, I don't want to use the word achievement, but you know what I mean, of the Trump administration were two things that the Republican right has sought for a very long time. One, uh, you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, by the U S right. Supreme court and two, uh, a massive tax cut for the richest people in the country. Um, and you know, uh, so, you know, Trump w- had made all these noises about, you know, there was going to be, uh, you know, they might, they might, they might raise taxes on rich people. They might do a kind of like, uh, some kind of parochial form of redistribution where they would figure out a way to only have it apply to, you know, white people or something. They were going to, um, you know, there were, there were, you know, there was talk of like, you know, cause Trump was totally noncommittal about he was going to get rid of Obamacare, but he was totally noncommittal about what he was going to replace it with. Cause in his very Trump way, he was just like, well, it's going to be big. It's going to be great. It's going to be better. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny if you go back and you read the National Review's editorial on their in their Never Trump issue, uh, mm. a lot of the stuff that they're concerned about is that Trump won't uh, pursue like traditional right wing objectives. Yeah. There's a line mm. in that piece that's always stuck with me where they're like his past, you know, praise of Canadian style health care suggests that, uh, you know, Trump and Bernie Sanders may share more in common than funky outer borough accents. yeah. So, that was the, that was like what the conservative movement that was their main line of attack on Trump um and it turned out that actually uh nope uh he's good. we're doing the tax cut uh we're stacking the, the court um you know we're we're gutting the regular regulatory state through um, executive orders all that kind of stuff so um mm-hmm. and you know they did ostensibly renegotiate nafta but you know if you look at the fine print they basically just put a new paint job on Um, The existing agreement and called it, you know, win for U.S. industry and manufacturing Mm -hmm. or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think the Trump administration, uh, you can say it's different in some ways from past administrations, but I think the difference is less qualitative and more a difference of degree. It was intense and it was, you know, like a horrific onslaught in almost every single area. Trump was more successful in pushing a right wing agenda in some areas than others. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the, the way the pr- one of the principal ways liberals or many liberals have understood the Trump administration is that it's like this new thing. Um, and actually there's some rational or, or like, you know, hum- humane kernel in like the old Republican party that can be salvaged. And I mean, I would challenge anyone who still thinks that to watch any of the debates in the Republican primaries in which Trump wasn't yeah. present, but which all the others were and were basically, you know. Uh, calling for a for, you know a sixth crusade or seventh crusade or whatever right. you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a really good um, essay by uh, Anton Jaeger. Um, everything is hyper political that appeared in the point. You know, uh, one thing one thing that uh, stuck with me because I was I reread it for something recently was the. Um, the, the concept of like that division between politics and policy that took place um, throughout the the kind of post-politics era um, where, you know, poli- politics is, is the, you know, getting that mass sentiment or whatever, but it's not like actually being able to enforce your will on the establishment in any way. And so, you know, his, his kind of framing of that was that politics had kind of gone into the media sphere had gone into just being about public expression while policy is you know now handed over to technocrats i think probably the innovation of the trump administration was to really really heighten the politics but functionally do policy the same way so really get us invested in these big discourses um but like nothing changes Fundamentally.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you saw that uh, both in the liberal media and the conservative media as well, where people, you know, particularly those who, um, you know, watch too much cable news became, I mean, really quite, you know, deeply invested in these grand narratives that sometimes had no basis in Reality and um, you know, in different ways. If you uh, you know compare, like uh, you might think of Russia Gate on the one hand, and and QAnon on the other, which is you know this completely unhinged outgrowth of the um, you know of, of of you know the fact that I think that you know the Trump administration, many people who were enthusiasts for it literally thought it was going to solve all of their problems, and then when it didn't, instead of I mean, this was their "when prophecy failed" moment. Instead of saying. Uh, you know, well, actually Trumpism wasn't what we thought. They were like, well, actually Trump is a crusader <laughs> in a 700 year, like secret, like time traveling war against the deep state or, you know, whatever. Um, and you know, the, the those discourses had something in common, mean um, and several things in common. One of them was the fact that, um, you know, uh, people could kind of There was like an ersatz or like a phony kind of participation people could do. Uh, QAnon is especially the case and Will Summers' book on it. uh, He charts this, uh, you know, wonderfully. You know, people could feel like they're doing something because they're watching all of these, uh, you know, clips, news clips. They're reading all these documents. They're like looking for breadcrumbs. In many cases, just inventing things, whole cloth. They're having all these debates. Uh, with one another about whose piece of evidence is legitimate and like what is the proper like interpretation of the of the qanon uh, you know the q drops and that kind of thing so people could feel like they were really affecting change in some way like they're they're participating meaningfully but um you know as anton uh, you know details in that wonderful essay of his um you know it's it's all just kind of a yeah, like a hyper, uh, a hyper spectacle. It's, you know, it's feverish and it's intense. It's full of sound and fury. Um, but yeah, it's, it signifies nothing apart from dial- a dialing up of a culture war that really bears very little relation to, um, the calculations made by policymakers, the decisions they make, um, or anything like that. Um, and, you know, uh, incidentally, I actually, I met Anton in, when I was in London a few weeks ago and, um, you know, we were talking about this. and and, you know, I told him that the thing I liked most about his essay was the uh, you know, the thing captured by the second part of the headline, which was, you know, it's because the the it was uh, the title or the subtitle was, you know, everything is political, but no one can do anything about it. And I think that's another thing to return to the question you, uh, you know, the second question you asked me um off near the top of the conversation, you know, about what what makes our moment distinct? And I mean, I really think, this kind of strange combination of everything being hyper political, but there being a sort of unique uh, lack of real avenues for meaningful democratic input or, or participation, which is different from the 1990s. Because in the 1990s, yeah, in many ways, it's a post-political time, but lots of people were perfectly serene about that. They didn't care. Um, and... Now, people definitely care, and you know uh I think that the the you know dissonance between you know the uh the hyper political reality we live in and and the uh you know avenues for democratic participation um explains a lot of uh you know the current mm-hmm. moment and what makes it so surreal and strange and difficult to navigate,
1: yeah, I think that actually transitions really nicely into moving into uh talking more about the Biden administration specifically now because. Um, I think that that is the feeling I have had for four years now. It feels like living through the Biden administration is that every uh, politics had been dialed up so much in the Trump administration, they've stayed dialed up. But I also don't feel like anything's happening. Like I was, I was pretty, pretty active in the 2020 protests. Nothing came of that, really. A lot of those reforms were, back, you know, pulled back within, you know, by the end of the year. Um, yes. Same thing, you know. Same thing even goes now when I've when I've gone to Palestine, uh, you, know, you know, solidarity protests. I think it's still good to go to those, but like, there there is a sense that like I'm just all I all I know how to do is just perform and express, mm. but not make anything happen, you know.
0: Sure, I mean, I think going to demonstrations is, uh, you know, I, I think that is, uh, I think that's worthwhile, um, and I mean, I think yes, that the, uh, you know, the. <laughs> Uh, you know, the experience of 2020 and, you know, what was by it seems by some measures the, the single biggest protest movement in, in U.S. history, the fact that right. it, um, you know, the fact that the Democrats kind of wrote it into the White House or, you know, certainly tried to align themselves with it. And then by, you know, Biden's I can't remember his first or second state of the union. Right. He's he's talking about how we need to fund, fund, fund the police. Um, oh you know, uh, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, it, it is. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's very very frustrating. Uh you know, how you know, it's it's interesting. I don't really disagree with any anything in your question, but I do think there's one wrinkle I would introduce into sure. uh into kind of you know th- how we think about the the last few years because there are some measures by which the Biden administration actually has dialed down a lot of the stuff um or or the dialing yeah. whether to the extent to which Biden is an agent of this of course is 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 an open question, but like Biden has, the Biden administration has uh, been, it has corresponded with a period where a lot of the things, a lot of the sort of hyper political things we saw during the Trump era have have really um, de escalated. Um, to give okay. uh, con- concrete examples, um, I wrote about this, I think, last fall. Uh, if you look at uh, the book sales of major books by major public, published by major uh, publishing houses, by journalists who often during the same people who would sell hundreds of thousands of copies of their Trump era books. If you look at the equivalent books that a lot of those people wrote, um, during the Biden or during the Trump era, I mean like the numbers that the Biden era books are doing are like, they're embarrassing. I mean, they're like, mm-hmm. there is, I believe an official biography of Jill Biden that I think has sold fewer copies than the dead center. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I remember, yeah. uh, From the metrics, I haven't seen the latest metrics for The Dead Center, but I mean, I mean, I believe the sales figures were below 5,000 for that book. Um, Okay. And there's a book about (laughs) Obama-Biden, their relationship that sold, you know, I think um, under 10,000, it might've been under 5,000 as well. Um, They're in the article. You can, you know, kind of run through it. Similarly, um, if you look at metrics for uh, engagement on social media with news and current affairs content um, between... Uh, Early 2021, and I believe the following year, they'd been cut in half. So uh, this is one area where you might say in a slightly facetious way that Bidenism has kind of succeeded. Because I do think uh, what Mm. a lot of people wanted from it um, was to just not have to pay attention to the news in the way that they felt they needed to during the uh trump era this was you know this you know recalls the it echoes the 2016 slogan or 20 post 2016 slogan you know if hillary had won we'd be back back at brunch right, or right we'd be at brunch right. um so that's what a lot of people wanted they wanted to go back to brunch they wanted to return to mm-hmm. a sort of political reality where like you know, post 2016, uh, you know, they weren't going to have to worry about, uh, Donald Trump's ascendancy in the Republican primaries. Once in a while they'd check in, Hillary would be courtside with Ellen dabbing at a, you know, uh Mets game or something. Um, or that's the wrong sport. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> um, I do actually know what mm. kind of team the Mets are. I simply misspoke. Um, that was a gaffe if you want. Um, but, uh, but no, like, uh, so that's one area where I think like the Biden administration has kind of, or like the Biden era has sort of seemed to weirdly deliver on its uh, promise. Although, you know, um, that has obviously been, um, you know, that has that has been contemporaneous with all of these protests and, and other things. So it's, a, it's difficult to assess, but that's uh, yeah. just sort of one possible kind of qualification I would introduce.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think... An interesting follow up to that, though, is, you know, since since, of course, October 7th, um, it feels like things are hyper-political again, like things have gotten ramped up. I don't know if there's metrics to um, back that up, but I, I wonder to what extent um, that has has caused some problems for what Biden had successfully done, which was kind of return to normalcy or whatever. Is is that now again? Again, we have protesters in the streets. Again, you know, it's starting to feel like the Bush era again, <laughs> with the warmongering right
0: Yeah, may- maybe. Although I think that the I-, I think that the the Biden I think Biden's problems in this regard mm-hmm. really began sort of by the it, it started by the third year of his presidency. I think when Biden failed to pass, you know, the lion's share of what was ostensibly his agenda. Um, and I think when mm. it became clear that Donald Trump was was going to run again and and was you know had a very good chance. I mean, I always I thought I never thought there was any question Trump would win the Republican nomination. And right. I, mean, I really yeah. think after uh, you know the recent primary and caucus results, I mean, there's really the question's been put to rest. Like Nikki Haley mm-hmm. is not going to win um, the, the Republican presidential nomination, much as some. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> extremely online libs may yeah. want to like cheer for her, which is a thing that right, I've actually yeah. seen. So, sorry, um, sorry,
1: Ross Douthat, I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it's like yeah. So um, I think the problems kind of started earlier. I think there was a lot of discontent. I mean, if you look at particularly sagging youth support for Biden, like his approval rating among uh under thirties or even under forties. Um, those, you know, y- younger people were absolutely essential to his narrow electoral college and, and popular vote, uh, victories in, uh, mm-hmm. I guess popular vote was a bit larger than the electoral college, but in, in 2020 and, uh, yeah, I mean, not only has he done nothing to, um, you know, turn that around, but, um, now he's at odds with, um, you know, mm-hmm. according to polls, at least, them. Yeah. yeah, at least half <laughs> of, yeah, I mean, the younger people certainly, but at least half of the people who voted for him in, 2020. So uh so yes, I definitely think there's been a return to the political and and look, I think that was always going to happen. Um yeah. even even uh even uh, if if recent events um that you referred to hadn't occurred because uh Trump was going to he was always going to win the Republican nomination. And once Donald Trump is uh you know, once once he has the national spotlight again, it's like that is uh <laughs> That is what Trumpian politics is, if it's anything. It is a constant, ongoing, relentless spectacle, spectacle mm-hmm. and, and and uh and it's a spectacle of, you know, Trump's own performance and the people who are stimulated by that, but it's also a spectacle of reaction to Donald Trump. And so I think that mm. the hyper political was always gonna return. And to some extent, it's now just a regular feature of every um, us election cycle, you know? Um, but it's going to be, I think, particularly feverish going into, uh, the election later this year.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I I don't know to what extent the, the, this is an impact on support, but I, I also think of like the first half of the Biden administration versus the second half during the first half. I, you know, aside from feeling like, you know, Bernie was ripped off and, and all of that kind of, um, feeling after 2020, I, I was starting to be kind of okay with Biden, you know, pulling out of Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, even if it wasn't done the best, it was, look, we're, we're ending the forever wars. It feels like finally Mm -hmm. I, but I, I think also a lot of that relied on the, what felt like the general consensus in 2020, 2021 was that, uh, you know, Biden's just here, uh, for one term. And then yes, we're gonna try yes. again next turn. Well, he
0: did. He did say that. I mean, it, okay, that's he did like something say, I couldn't remember I mean, he, if that was like a Mandela no, no, effect thing. <laughs> no, there's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those. It's like the Be- Bernstein Bears. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, uh, you know, there was there was, uh, I believe. I mean, unless I'm completely insane, there was a uh, you know an interview he did or, or something else where he said, you know, uh, yeah, I see. This as kind of like. Uh, you know, it's I'm gonna have one term, and then I'm gonna turn things over to the new generation or something. Yeah, that'd I mean, be you great. Could, you, man. Could, you could check it, <laughs> but I don't. I don't think I'm wrong to remember that. Um, but I think, but regardless, I think you're right about the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the first year of of the Biden administration, possibly the first two years. I mean, there were a number of things that uh, did, d- you know, did seem to distinguish, or you know, frankly, did distinguish his response to. Uh, the, the, you know, the uh, economic situation created by the pandemic that mm-hmm. um, really, uh, you know, diverged from the approach Obama had taken in, in 2008 or 2009, rather. Um, you know, there was uh, the American Rescue Plan, which was passed in either late January, or early February of, um, of uh, 2021. Uh, or- yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's right of 2021 um which you know was a, a very large stimulus package included uh these direct cash payments um to Americans these unemployment checks um you know which the Trump administration had done a version of as well although the uh you know Biden stimulus uh was a lot more effective in many ways and it, it was more uh, redistributive in its uh, outcomes at least as far as you know regular people rather than um you know uh you know corporate boardrooms uh, was concerned Um, And, you know, there was uh, then Biden tabling an even bigger package of spending that was going to make the things like the child tax credit uh, permanent. Um, And so it did seem like, if nothing else, there was a break from kind of the fiscal orthodoxy the Democratic Party had embraced in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, after uh, 2008. Um, Now, I was uh, like I was skeptical of of this at the time uh, for a few reasons. Um, I mean. Uh, first of all, um, for the for the for the, the you know the the sort of broad reason that uh, governments all over the world, kind of regardless of their ideological uh, affiliation, did seem to um, be willing to spend more than they had after 2008. There just seemed to be a kind of um, like whatever that kind of uh, consensus had been um, in 2009. It didn't seem like there was the same stigma on massive public spending um at least in the short term. Um so that's one thing. Secondly, there was a decision made a, a sort of well a, what was ostensibly a strategic decision made some months after the uh the, the second bill whose name I'm now forgetting was tabled the the second big spending package. Um it might might been might have been the American Families Plan, I can't remember. But um Uh, You know this was going to be trillions of dollars, and uh, Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi um, announced, "Well, we're actually going to split this into two bills." And they did the same thing in the Senate, Um, and we're going to have this infrastructure bill um, that's going to have the kind of like all the bipartisan stuff, the spending Republicans want, but we're going to pair it to this other bill that has you know basically the, the the core of the Biden agenda in it. And uh, at the time the the you know the, the justification was ostensibly that actually by breaking up the bill uh, we have now the the infrastructure stuff that the other side wants and that the cent- center of the Democratic Party wants. We have that as a cudgel to beat uh, to beat them with like mm-hmm. you know we can say to them, hey, if you want this infrastructure spending your way, that's great, but you've got to give us all this social expenditure as well. Um, but I never really thought that that's why they were doing it. It seemed to me that as soon as they split the bill in two, that was creating a situation, yeah. it was laying a groundwork for a situation where they passed one but not the other. And that is exactly what happened. They passed the uh, infrastructure bill with whatever it was, 11, 12 Republican votes in the Senate. And then um, the you know uh, other spending package they passed uh, that finally passed in the form of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act yeah, there was good stuff in there. The scale of it compared to what they had initially proposed was yeah. uh, much, much smaller, uh dramatically scaled down. So um yeah, the the you know, the assessing the first few years of the Biden administration is hard um because uh or it's it's complicated because yeah, there's mm-hmm. ways that there you know, was divergence from the past, but I think there was a fair amount of continuity as well. And the extent to which uh, which of those things kind of uh, predominates is very much, you know, people will be debating that I'm sure for, 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 yeah. for the next decade or so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there will, yeah, there will be kind of an ongoing debate about how progressive Biden was. Um, I mean, ultimately not enough, obviously. Um, but yeah, there's the, the glimmer of stuff that, that could happen. I, I think for me, the, the real shift where I, I had, cause I, I'd been kind of okay with the Biden administration as that single one term of maybe we get a couple really moderate reforms. And then next time sure. we, yeah. we, we, things work out. What I really soured on him about was, was, was right around the, uh, the rail workers strike and yes. uh, the decision yes. to just destroy that. That was when, cause the, one of the big things I remember in 2020 people saying, Hey, maybe Biden would be fine to vote for is at the very least we can push him on y- labor issues. Um, and at well, the time, and, that and seemed that's, right. I'm glad,
0: you, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because, I mean, um, if you look at the appointments the administration's made to the National Labor Relations Board, I mean, that is one area where they've, um, mm. uh, you know, where they've where they've been better than uh, someone like me might have expected. Um, and of course, you know, Biden did go and, um, you know, speak on a picket line. He's been more yeah. Yeah. Um, during the UAW strike. He's been more openly pro-union than, um, you know, certainly, you know, Bill Clinton or, or Barack Obama. Um and so that's mm. that's not uh, that's not nothing although not yeah the effect, pro act yeah. which was the big <laughs> the big labor reform that the uh, you know American labor movement was pushing um you know Biden did endorse it in one of his state of the unions but there I mean there's never any hope of I mean the 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 test I mean you can use if you want the Obama to you know 2009 2010 test which is okay when democrats are in the majority do they actually pass any of the stuff um that they say they believe in um do they do they really meaningfully try to pass it or do they always find like uh one one senator or two that uh oh well we would pass all the great stuff if it wasn't for a Kirsten in cinema or yeah, um, I'm forgetting who some, uh... the scapegoat was in 2000 Uh, eight or two thousand nine, and of course you don't actually need sixty votes in the Senate. Um, when you know this applies to everything we've talked about, all of these legislative debates, you can also just get rid of the filibuster and pass things by a simple majority. Um, you know (laughs) you can you can do a lot of things by executive order. The American Prospect um published an amazing list, the day one agenda uh, right after Biden was inaugurated, or maybe was shortly before during the transition, and they basically had all these creative ways uh that Biden could. Get around Congress and do things that were popular. Um, You know, like, for example, really simple thing. um, And this is the kind of thing that if if Sanders had been elected, I have absolutely no doubt that he would have done. Um, The president has the power to, uh, you know, craft rules, enforce rules on uh, federal agencies. Um, So... So every, every uh, business or contractor that a federal agency retains, uh, let's say it's Amazon for something, uh, they have to be unionized. And you can bet right. that if something like that uh, was on the books, a lot more companies would probably, uh, they would be less hostile to having unionized workplaces yep, yep. very, very fast. <laughs> You know, um, and that's just one example. I mean, that that um, the day one agenda is still worth looking at. Um, you know, so uh, you know, an, yeah, executive power. Um, I mean, the god, the the one that absolutely killed me was the uh, the Senate parliamentarian and the minimum wage. <laughs> I mean, that was extraordinary. All of a sudden, this this unelected referee who literally nobody had ever heard of. Um, you know, who, who who doesn't you know have an area code in like. You know, uh, you know, a, a rich like Virginia, Maryland, or DC area code. Every single like, like no one had heard of no one had heard of the parliamentary, and all of a sudden, this was the reason why um, well, Americans couldn't anything. get a, a promised minimum wage increase. Like Kamala Harris had the power, like constitutionally, has the power to overrule this person. Uh, it's crazy, and they didn't do it. Uh, I mean. I mean, it's like that is. I mean, they 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 could have given millions of Americans a raise, and they did by by just saying, mm-hmm. "No, we actually don't want to go with the uh, completely not binding recommendation that this person, no one's ever heard of, uh, has has made." Uh, we're just going to overrule that and pass the agenda. We were democratically elected. We have a mandate to implement. Um, that is the that's the kind of thing where. It's like yeah, for all the ways Biden has maybe been different, um, that kind of thing. There's a lot of continuity as well, and of course, the rail workers strike where Biden very he did a very classic thing of, I mean, literally being the agent or one of the principal agents. Democratic leadership was the the leading agent in the crushing of the of the strike um, in the in the back to work legislation, um, but also of course Biden then came out and said, well, you know, if my uh, Republican friends will just you know. Uh, turn around we'll pass the pro act we'll uh we won't send them back to work or we'll we'll get sick days for them that they're asking for and uh really classic democratic triangulation Mm. that uh, is the sort of thing you know barack obama would be proud of (laughs) and and i'm sure is by the way
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh you know one thing this brings to mind is uh something you you've written about um a bit which is the kind of uh democrat um rhetoric of of uh, emergency of crisis of the threat of of the you know our, our democracy is in peril um you know i uh, i i guess do, do you want to say a little bit about that process like like what 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 are your thoughts on that um the role of democrats kind of consistently framing things as a a yeah an emergency while never actually wielding power I think there's two, uh, there's two
0: facets to this that are, that are quite different. I mean, so, uh, I mean, in one sense it is, it is really just an extension of what we were discussing before, uh, vis-a-vis yeah. sort of hyper politics where, you know, there's a, there's a disengaged, uh, or there's a, there's a dispassionate or a, a, an elite that's, that's not really doesn't consider itself accountable or responsive to, um, you know, uh, you know what uh, opinion polls say is popular, to, or to any kind of you know demos, if you want. Mm. Um, and and so uh, what do they do? They, you know, they die, they constantly dial up politics. The tone of it, they constantly like sort of rhetorically elevate the stakes of it, um, without really changing their behavior. And you saw that throughout the Trump administration, where. Um, you know, the Democrats would, would talk about how, you know, Donald Trump was, this was completely unprecedented. He's a, he's a dictator, he's a tyrant, or he wants to be mm-hmm. one. Um, and then they'd be like, well, yeah, but I mean, what, what are we going to do? Like not approve his like, you know, uh, nominees or like for like not approve his appointments, <laughs> not like right, fast right. track his appointments to key judicial posts. So, you know, that's a very, um, it's a very uh, simple instance of a straightforward instance of, of democratic um, hypocrisy. I, the second the second uh, dimension, though, is that I think one reasons Democrats, establishment Democrats say this stuff is because there's lots of people who are, you know, earnestly concerned about American democracy, who are worried mm-hmm. about their country. And I want to I want to stress this because. Um, you know I have uh, made you know I have written a lot of pieces I've written a lot about um, that's kind of acerbic and is critical of liberals and diverges from how you know sharply from the way many older liberals in particular uh, mm-hmm. see the world but I want to be clear here um, there's lots of people who watch MSNBC for example and are following the uh, you know the the very the, you know, I don't know, 50 dozen Trump uh, court cases or whatever it is now. Um, and they're doing that because they they are genuinely uh, concerned about their country and they are concerned about, um, you know, what another Republican administration might mean in all kinds mm-hmm. of areas. Um, and so, you know, and, and the same was true during the Trump administration as well. People were concerned about what was going on. Um, and so... Uh, when the opposition party, uh, you know, looks at kind of that state of affairs, the opposition party during the Trump era, and now the governing party, they understand that there's a market for this stuff, and so there's a reason why they use the rhetoric that they do. They're they're saying, "Wait, uh, hey, we, un- hey, we get it. We hear you. We understand. We're here mm-hmm. to champion your cause." Um, but then at the same time, they're not really willing to change their behavior. Um, they're not really willing to just align themselves in many instances with. Um, where majority public opinion is, either within, um, you know, the, you know, pool of uh, people who are uh, supporters of the Democratic Party, uh, or the American public uh, at large. I mean, just look at, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the polls uh, in favor of single-payer health care for years, among uh, Republicans and independents, strong support for that as well. Um, I mean, Saddam Hussein-like numbers among Democrats. um, And yet you cannot get, um, you know, you cannot get uh, major Democratic politicians to um, align themselves with that or, uh, you know, really channel, um, you know, channel uh, it in their, incorporate it into their behavior at all. And so, um, yeah, that's what I'd say about that. There's two, there's two ways of thinking about it. One, One, it's it's an expression of um, there's a lot here. That's just an expression of people's earnestness and their and their concern, Mm -hmm. which is perfectly justified. And then there's the cynicism of elites who want to um, take advantage, you know, take advantage Mm -hmm. of it and 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 opportunistically Mm -hmm. seize upon it without really being responsive or accountable to it.
1: Yeah, that that kind of this has been kind of a a thing that I have not been sure how to think through. Um, I think is. That on the one hand, the Democrats very, very cynically and consistently use this rhetoric of, oh, my God, the democracy's failing. Fascism is rising. Well, on the flip side, it's kind of true. It's just that they're not the ones actually helping <laughs> in any way.
0: Oh, that's right. I mean, the, the state of America's institutions uh, is, I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's looking uh, bad. It's not yeah. strong. It's not good. <laughs> I mean, it's. Um, yeah. I mean, across the board, you have. Supreme court where there's a majority, uh, who, you know, were appointed by, uh, presidents that lost the popular vote. So, I mean, it's literally a sort of like, you know, a, 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 a small uh, cadre of robed clerics who like now have a veto power over, uh, you know, American, uh, you know, all kinds of important facets of American life. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, overturned uh, uh, Roe versus Wade without having any legitimacy to do so. Even within, like, even if you think that the Supreme Court is sort of a legitimate institution in the first place, and you know, for my part, I think that um, it's not uh, good for, for t- to have <laughs> judges with that level of power. I don't, you know, I believe in popular democracy, popular sovereignty, not, um, not, not that. But uh, you have an electoral college that allows people to get elected in the first place without winning. Uh, the popular vote. Um, I mean, George Bush uh, lost it by at least five hundred thousand votes, and then just stole the election anyway. He actually lost the electoral college as well, but they they did the successful January version of January sixth, and didn't have to worry about that. Um, <laughs> Trump obviously lost uh, by millions of votes. I think it was to, to Hillary Clinton, and he got the uh, he got the presidency anyway. Um, so across the board, there's um, and actually that's what one other thing I'll enter in the, into the uh, discussion is, of course. The, the influence of money in politics, which is abs- which is just completely right. out of control. I mean, you now you have not only, uh, you know, sort of this Wild West in terms of campaign finance uh, stuff, you also have um, politicians uh, through congression- congressional stock trading. I mean, literally trading in in bits of the economy that they're supposed to be regulating and overseeing and making a mm-hmm. profit from it. I mean, it's uh, it's really sort of like Brezhnev era USSR kind of stuff. Uh, it's it's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I mean that that's a real um, that's a real interesting parallel to what it what it feels like at the present with the U.S. It's one I think of a lot it, too. Is the the Brezhnev era and the kind of stagnation before the fall of the Soviet Union? And there's, I mean, there's obviously very massive differences between the U.S. and that, but I, I do think that there's um, something to that parallel that I. I found compelling, um, you know, uh, especially. Um, God, I read, I read a while back. Um, Everything is forever until it's no more. By uh, I'm forgetting the first name, but Yershak is the author's mm-hmm. last name. Um, it was about like the the last Soviet generation and um, kind right, of the sentiment. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna make a note of it. Yeah, it's it's where hypernormalization, the name of the Adam Curtis movie, is where he got that term is from that book. Right, so. right. It's pretty solid. Um, anyway, I think about it a lot because I, I think of that um, as the title kind of gives it away that that sense of like, this is going to last forever. The system can't fail. It's been here my whole life. And then also the instant it fails, everyone goes, yeah, I kind of saw that coming. You know, that that was kind of what he was trying to interrogate with the book. And I it feels like we're living in that moment right now where on the one hand, I have an, a part of me that's like, this is forever. It just kind of feels like we're going to be having these same discourses forever. It's just going to be Democrats saying we're going to save the union while fascists get stronger forever. But on the flip side, if everything caved in tomorrow, I'd be like, "Well, yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I can't remember
0: who first made the comment, but someone very perceptibly said, <clears throat> um, "You know, that it doesn't really so much feel like we're living in like you know a version of 2020 that never ended. It feels like actually we're trapped in a version of 2016 that never ended." Yes. Like, yeah. That is that is very much how this uh, whatever this moment we're experiencing, um, feels. And, uh, I agree with you. I I don't know what's going to come next, but what I would say is that I think if the past 15 or so years have taught us anything, it's that, um, really, uh, quite unexpected things, um, sometimes bad, but Mm -hmm. honestly often, uh, constructive and positive, um, and hopeful as well, can, emerge when uh everything seems so sclerotic that um you you couldn't you couldn't imagine them them appearing like uh the Bernie Sanders campaign of 2016 is one example of that um or you know uh, I was following uh, shortly before that the uh, labor leadership race in Great Britain where with Corbyn uh Word. with Corbyn right and before <laughs> he entered the race I was following it and you had uh four well there were more than that but i mean Uh, four, four, five, six uh, Labour Party politicians who were basically all running on the premise that the reason they just lost an election um, was that the party was still too left-wing, which for anyone who'd followed the election, I mean, highly questionable. Um, And uh, and it just seemed like, well, uh, this is moribund. I mean, there is no hope for this as any kind of vehicle for social change. Uh, This is what we're stuck in now. And, uh, and you know, obviously, um, the, the, you know, uh, Corbyn victory in 2016, uh, 2015, and then again in 2016 during the leadership challenge, um, these were victories on a scale that had never happened in the history of the Labour Party
1: mm-hmm. that
0: were a total deviation from the trend we've seen across North America and Europe um, of declining uh, partic- mass participation in political parties. Um, and you know obviously the the project uh, was not ultimately a success, but I think that that's nevertheless an example of um, there are things that uh, can come out of the blue. And yeah, when they when they do, uh, I think as you said, often it feels like, well, of course, this is just expressing <laughs> or or this is a, an expression of what we've known to be true all along. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it felt like with uh, Sanders in in 2016. Uh, he was coming out and he was just saying things, uh, where I'd felt uh, my entire adult life, if people are just given the opportunity to vote for this, they're going to vote for it in record numbers. That's what happened in Britain in 2017 as well mm-hmm. with this massive uh, swing, the biggest in post-war uh, British history to the uh, Corbyn-led Labour Party. You know, um, So uh, I agree with you, and I think... Uh, while the future is uncertain, um i I do not believe we are going to be stuck in this kind of uh, particular pr- paralysis we're in now um indefinitely. I just think uh, mm-hmm. it can't it can't possibly hold. and I think that uh, hopefully in ways that will be encouraging the future will surprise us,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. um i I I'm kind of like surprised by the optimism there, but I think that that's that's a good thing to be surprised by. I, I Well, I um... think it's a very important
0: uh thing to hold on to. Um and it, and it's yeah, not absolutely. something I'm just sort of arbitrarily clinging to. Like it really is something that's born out of the experience of the past you know 10 or 15 uh years. I mean, I really think that um you know, there there there've there been a number of developments which which actually have made me a lot less mm-hmm. uh pessimistic and um you know, obviously I don't know what form uh you know progressive or transformative change is going to take in the next year, five years, ten years, twenty years, but um mm-hmm. I, I think I think uh I think there's gonna be a lot in you know, in a hopeful way that that will surprise us. And I think that the experience of the past ten or fifteen years really bears that out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh well, one one other thing, uh kind of returning to the conversation of uh Israel-Palestine, um and kind of in the kind of hauntology that we've he- continued to talk about, right. The, the sense that just things, um, things aren't moving, um, which, uh, you know, hopefully they're beginning to move, but, um, something that, that I, uh, that Israel Palestine has brought back, um, the sense of like we're reliving Bush era in certain aspects, um, which I, I think is interesting. Um, Talking to you about that specifically is why I want to bring that on, bring that up is, you know, Michael and us being at its sure. its start anyway, kind of a reflection on the Bush era and kind of what that meant, um, you know, a, as time went on, it, it advanced and became about a lot more. But, you know, um, during the, the early years of the podcast, I guess what what lessons from the Bush era and from the kind of war on terror era in general, do you think are relevant now as we're looking at more destabilization in the Middle East and the U.S. involved in it?
0: sure well i mean uh i am by no means the first person to make this point but i think that we've uh what we've experienced is um a version of what you know happened after 911 um mm-hmm. but but massively sped up you know people have said it's it's a spe- it's like a speed run you know yeah. um you know there were things that took years to develop changes in public opinion changes in rhetoric from politicians that um have took took weeks to develop in in the case of if we're talking about um, the month since October 7th, or or also, I think probably in a number of other areas as well. Um, and in terms of the, the lessons, um, I'm not, I'm not sure there are any, um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I mean, the, the, the anti-war people were right in 2003 and they're, (laughs) you know, they're right, they're right today. Um, you know, I think, (laughs) I think I would, I would just leave it at that. Um, but, uh, you mentioned hauntology and I mean, I think that, um, you know to kind of transpose Fisher's you know ontology concept a little bit i mean i think one way of understanding the the current moment as far as the political reaction is concerned um is that um you know the poli- we we have a generation of political elites uh who are you know in the united states especially who are um ab- above a certain age shall we say uh you know the median the average age of um you know establishment politicians in the united states is is quite advanced. Uh, should we we can leave it at that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just think they have, you know, they they have a, an inheritance from the past in terms of how they approach, um, you know, political reality that is quite outdated. I mean, they think that um, they think that uh, you know wars happen according to a certain chronology at a certain speed. Um, you know, mm-hmm. particularly in the case of Israel. Um, they're they're thinking about you know for example a thing that was quite literally called the six day war um, you know right. they're thinking of things like that um, they are thinking of um, public opinion that is uh, you know more inclined to be uh, deferential towards political elites uh, in the manner that you know uh, may have initially been um, when it comes to the war in Vietnam and, and certainly was um, after nine eleven I mean. Um, I think I mentioned this on a recent episode of um, the podcast, but I'll repeat it here. I mean, uh, polls in 2003 not only showed strong support, uh, majority support from the American public for the invasion of Iraq, they showed that a majority of Americans, and I can't remember how much of a majority, but I believe it was quite significant, Mm -hmm. uh, believed that Saddam Hussein had been involved in 9-11, um, so
1: yeah, you know,
0: yeah. like which was beyond officially. I mean, the administration was certainly hinting at that, and its proxies were were, were just overtly claiming it. Um, but uh, you know, like that. So, like a majority of Americans had um, a- a- an attitude that was actually to to like to the right of the like Bush administration's like official attitude, yeah. which is which is extraordinary, and obviously. If you look at uh, opinion polling now, uh, there's a lot less support for um, and a lot less deference to America's elites, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. Um, so that's a major mm. difference. And I think broadly, it's a you know, it's quite an encouraging one. That's a good
1: one. Yeah. Well, maybe um, maybe moving toward wrapping up here, but... Um I guess l- looking ahead at 2024 here, um, you know, I I think it would be – I think one thing we've learned from the last, you know, decade of politics at least is it's really difficult to make any predictions. So maybe not ask predictions per se, but what, what are you looking at in this coming year as we're kind of approaching, you know, kind of the election year for the world as it's been kind of getting covered? Um, you know, so many elections happen to be lining up in this year. Uh, what What is – what what are you kind of looking forward toward?
0: So uh, refresh my memory. So the elections coming up are, are Brit are, are the United States possibly Britain though maybe not for till next year possibly Canada but I would I would anticipate probably not until
1: twenty twenty five. Let's see. Let me find that. I I think it was yeah. like Time or something that had. You're right. Article. You're right that like... that's
0: a thing people are saying. I just can't think off yeah. the top of my head what what the. Well, I I, are. I
1: did the silly thing of repeating what everybody's saying without. Uh... <laughs> yeah here we go uh india the european union united states indonesia pakistan bangladesh uh russia um i mean it's just gonna be putin uh mexico iran united kingdom south africa yeah it's pretty jesus this is a huge list (laughs) well yeah
0: so it's it's quite an extensive list i mean yeah when it comes to russia i mean i i think the only thing that will be interesting there is uh, how much is Putin able to cheat? Because in the past, we actually have seen his vote share decline because mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, Russian public opinion changed in a way that made it harder for him to to like legitimately claim in public that, oh, yeah, I got 90 percent support or something. It's like, oh, I only got <laughs> I only got 70 percent support, whereas, you know, the real number is probably still like at the time was probably still 60 or something, you know, Um right. So yeah, that that's you know that uh that 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 will certainly be interesting to watch although not because yeah, not because the um not because it's a tight race or anything, Not because yeah. <laughs> it's a tight. But, yeah, it's not because it's a tight race. Um but um yeah, political predictions, I mean I mean uh, you know, electoral predictions um I I think that uh I don't I don't expect any uh you know really profound uh changes i mean um or if i do they're going to be for the for the worse so i think yeah it's kind of 50-50 at this point whether um trump or biden wins i mean unless something changes i mean i think yeah uh there's you know uh, there there is polling that i've seen um i haven't looked at it closely that suggests that trump may actually lose a few uh, points of popular support nationally if he is convicted of a felony um i yeah. mean who knows i'm skeptical based on uh past precedent i uh, will have to see um you know uh i think the most significant electoral event in recent history was probably brazil which was last year um right and that was yeah. very highly significant and um you know if people want uh, an election to be uh cheerful about. I mean, that is Lula being reelected, unseating Bolsonaro, um, and then defeating the sort of uh, attempted chicken coup, which, uh, you know, uh, ensued in the weeks after his inauguration. Uh, Pretty, pretty encouraging stuff. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of non-electoral predictions that are hopeful, um, I think that, uh, you know, there will be, uh, you know, I think there will be continued disenchantment with um, you know, politi- political class broadly speaking. Um, I think that uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, the the protests we're seeing right now, uh, the public opinion polls that we're seeing, um, you know, around uh, it, it, around all kinds of areas, not just um, you know the the war in Gaza. Um, I, I think it really suggests that uh, you know there is a strong constituency for um, progressive and and even potentially quite transformative change and it's really you know the task of the left to make sure that it's us that capitalizes on that and cap- mobilizes mm-hmm. it democratically uh rather than the right which uh you know will try to mobilize mobilize it um mm-hmm. for for decidedly non-democratic purposes i guess i i began my answer by sort of promising predictions but um you know i feel like i'm not i <laughs> uh, i'm not really in the enterprise of making uh of making predictions at least at the moment or perhaps mm. there's just too much uncertainty for me to really give you anything with much uh confidence so sure. perhaps oh, I'll, there is, I'll leave things yeah. there
1: <laughs> there is a lot of uncertainty i mean uh yeah i mean the the t- trump trump's legal issues is a very kind of feels almost unprecedented with like is it actually going to happen is is anything going to come of that or is it just you know more of that that um kind of uh, uh rhetoric of emergency like we talked about earlier um, yeah, uh, well, I, I think we can move toward wrapping up here, um, for anyone who is not familiar with your work or with Michael and us or anything, do you want to plug any of that? Sure. Well,
0: yeah, you can find most of what I do on, on Twitter at Luke W. Savage. Um, I'm still writing regularly for Jacobin. I'm now in a columnist role though, uh, rather than the staff oh. writer role, um, writing for other places too. Also do the podcast you mentioned, Michael and Us, um, patreon.com slash us. check it out. There's a free episode every week um, if you wanna if you want to examine the merchandise before making a purchase. Um, but uh <laughs> but yeah, if you if you like this podcast, you'll probably uh, enjoy that. And um, you know, if people are interested to know more about Ed Broadbent, uh, you know, check yeah. out Seeking Social Democracy. Um, it's you know, you'll find I know books by politicians. Uh, are often you know retired or otherwise are often kind of boring um ed ed was anything but boring uh he was a fascinating mm. guy who thought very deeply about both the theory and the practice of politics um and uh I'll, i should have a piece uh coming in jacobin soon in which you know i i do my best to uh you know talk about his uh his career um you know talk a bit about my relationship with him and um you know talk about the uh, the remarkable legacy that he's uh, that he's left us
1: yeah, if if I remember, I'll try to stick that in the show notes after it's out. But cheers! All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Josiah. This was fantastic. Really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Fruitless. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a uh, review on Apple Podcasts and help me out with the algorithm. If you really like what you heard, uh, check out the show on Patreon. There's, uh, two extra episodes a month. Uh, you can find the link for that in the show notes. And hey, speaking of Patreon, this, uh, episode is brought to you by our lovely patrons, who include Chris Barker, Leo Zachary Dickinson, I Am Once Again, Regular-Sized Horse, parentheses Small, Kyle Gannis, Moss, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, Stephen, aka Spike Stonehand, Gavin Aronson, Joseph Gross, and of course, Men's Room Louis. Uh, thank you so much for support. Uh, it really helps out. And I will see you uh, later this week, probably on the Patreon. I eat pears now and shit like that. Shout out to all the pear.